Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 34C, an interview on Eisenhower and the wild election of 1952 with Christopher Nichols. I'm excited to welcome Chris Nichols back to the show today. Chris is the Wayne Woodrow Hayes Chair of, in National Security Studies and a professor of history at Ohio State University, and he is the author or editor of six books on U.S. and presidential history. He is currently working on his next book about the election in 1952, which is a fun one, and that's what we're here to discuss today. Welcome back, Chris. Hey, Kenny. It's great to be with you. Thanks. Well, let's start with, why are you writing a book about the election of 1952? What is it about that election that caught your eye? Well, as you said, it's wild, for starters. Um, it's The closer you look, uh, the more you see dramatic stories, you see counterfactuals, what might have happened if not uh, for what, what turned out. Um, the, and I think uh, maybe most importantly, the long-term ramifications of the election of 1952 uh, are often minimized. And I would say that they um, kind of can't be overstated. We'll get into that more as we go. But for me, uh, one of the big motivations was thinking about the ideas and the politicians who start before uh, World War II and yeah. carry through the post-war era. And I got really interested in this moment because it's kind of the last gasp of conservative isolationism and unilateralism mm. in, in, in the name, in the actions of Robert Taft uh, fighting Eisenhower for the Republican Party nomination. And then on the other hand, a kind of set of visions about where the U.S. might be in the world that hark back to the Wilson era yeah. and idealism and reshaping the world, but also even the late 19th century and debates about, you know, what is world power for, if not to mm. actually just advance U.S. interests uh, in a more crass sensibility. Like, you know, if this isn't profitable, we shouldn't do it. We, you know, sure. that, so, that sort of thing. So anyway, the debates of 52, I think, as you if you unpack them, show you a lot about modern American politics and really are still with us in some ways. And, and so quick reminder for our listeners, 1952, this is the year Ike first gets elected. So what is it that brings Eisenhower into the race? And also what brings him in as a Republican? You know, we know Harry Truman had been trying to get him to run as a Democrat since basically since FDR died. So why did Ike ignore those entreaties and, and not run before and not run as a Democrat and then decide in 52, I will run and I will run as a Republican? All right. So um, let's cast aside the first big myth, Eisenhower as apolitical. His formal public stance was apolitical, for sure, without a doubt. He's, he's one of those true believers that the American military should not ever express its political beliefs in public. And he's not a registered Republican. Uh, he's very hard to track down in terms of his registered party politics or, or what his votes were. He, did, he, he, took, uh, he took those votes and kept them really close to the vest. Now, why is that a myth? Because if you talk to any of his close friends, if you talk to people he knew in the Second World War, in the famous class of 1915 at West Point, um, they knew he was Republican. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not in doubt. Yeah. Uh, so there are very few people who think that he was truly apolitical. Now, why did it seem to people like Harry Truman that he might run as Democrat? Because in 48 in particular uh, and 52, some of the major foreign policy questions in the era and domestic political questions were ones that actually Ike seemed to support in a kind of in line with Democrats, right? Uh, kind of liberal internationalism, NATO, uh, elements of the New Deal. He winds up picking these fights with Truman to win the win the conflict, win right. <laughs> win the election. Yeah. But he's not really anti-Truman at all. So that doesn't make him a Democrat. That just means that he aligned fairly well with some Democratic positions coming out of the Second World War. Okay, so the way I phrased it in the last question was Eisenhower running for office, but yeah. he didn't really run for the GOP nomination, did he? What was he doing instead? during this primary season. And also, how did he win? Despite not running, he won five of 12 GOP primaries when he wasn't even a declared candidate. What's going on there? Okay, all right. There's a there's a ton to tackle there. Um, so uh, going back to the apolitical move, um, there he is. Uh, he is the supreme allied commander of NATO, supreme right. allied commander of the world, in the Second World War. Um, he's uh, there abroad in France, um, working on NATO uh, in, in that period, um, and in constant communication, particularly with people trying to draft him. So the first draft Ike campaign is 1948. Uh, again, mostly Republicans are the ones uh, pushing that, although it's somewhat bipartisan at first. Then again, in 1951, 
actually. Uh, the draft Ike campaign begins in earnest. Uh, there are some bipartisan folks there too, and Harry Truman flirts with this. But the reality is Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., uh, the son yeah. of the former uh, Massachusetts senator, now he also is a senator, uh, Henry Cabot Lodge uh, Sr., who had been an arch architect of American expansionism around 1900, his son, uh, another Republican, yeah. um, is pushing for a kind of liberal internationalism uh, and, and wants to get in someone like Eisenhower. Why? Because Robert Taft is looming. Taft is now running. <laughs> yeah, he's looming over this election. It looks like any Republican, any R is going to win. We all know this sort of sure. the way that these things are gamed out, the horse race, right? Yeah. Um, now, is a conservative Republican like Taft, who's cast with the epithet isolationist, uh, as likely to win as someone like Eisenhower? The conventional wisdom for Republicans and for moderates, people like Thomas Dewey, who had run and lost in 48, right? The famous, the famous Dewey beats Truman, except yep. it didn't yep. happen. Yep. Um, they are thinking that they need to get a different candidate from Taft. The Taft is vulnerable because of his conservative positions and particularly his um, positions against, say, NATO, uh, for instance, and um, not being very interested in the Marshall Plan uh, and a host of other things. Um, his conservatism is a weakness, according to them. So uh, one of Eisenhower's good friends, a general named Lucius Clay, is probably the, the main person who um, is upset about impossible uh Taft candidacy and Taft victory, in fact. Uh, and one of the things that those folks say is things uh, roughly paraphrased. We cannot let the isolationists gain control over the government. Uh, we will not endure as a free people mm. with individuals like Robert Taft running the country. So their fear is that Taft, these Taftites will be more like the imperial presidency that they accuse, you know, accused FDR of and now are accusing Truman of. Um, so Slowly, they're helping convert someone uh, like Eisenhower, which every biography notes um, he th hoped to be president. He he wasn't uh, preparing for it. He wasn't the. He's actually quite naive in his politics, as as <laughs> yeah. um, as you know, as you've been already stating uh, and talking about with the audience. And uh, so, but he, he does want to be president. I mean, there's no doubt that that he would like to be president, but he needs to be persuaded. And he doesn't want to announce his campaign. What he'd like to have happen is to have um, have a kind of unanimous acclamation of him by by the Republican Party. So he he wants what happened in 1916 to Charles Evans Hughes to happen for him. And it just doesn't happen in American Party politics generally. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. It, has, it, it hasn't happened since 1916. So um, how does he run? So he's there, NATO commander. Uh, he's got this draft Ike group around him. He's still not willing to let them put his name down. So as the first primary comes up in early 52 in New Hampshire, um, they, they can put his name in, but he won't officially announce. No. Um, um, and and it's, and so it's a, that distinction is it's it it seems like a distinction without a difference to us today, um, but it's really significant in that moment. People are begging Eisenhower for a statement, and so yeah. are these campaign folks behind him. They're you yeah. know Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. is begging, pleading, flying to Paris. So are a lot of other people. They come. Uh, there's a big uh, draft Ike uh, um, extravaganza in Madison Square Garden. They take uh, tape of that or video of that across uh, across the Atlantic to show to Ike to say, look, all these people want you. Come on, just announce, announce. You won't do it. Uh, <laughs> but we know basically this group knows he's running, right? Yeah. So they're gathering money. They're gathering a team. Um, they're they're preparing. But what they're not doing is getting the ground game in order because they can't because they don't have his name on all the primaries. They don't. They can't start up campaign headquarters in all the states that run primaries. Now, side note, in this era, right. derisively, primaries were called beauty, uh, beauty pageants um, <laughs> because they were thought of as just, uh, as just this superficial thing. It didn't really matter. In ma many of the primaries, um, the, the delegates weren't even bound. Um, mm. So mm -hmm. and so they could switch, and in fact, we see that happening at the convention. Um, so the, the sort of beauty pageant dynamic of of the of of this means that in some states they're not competitive; the candidates don't run. But it's really important to get there if you can, and the Taft people do. So the Taft people have a kind of stranglehold on state the state apparatus for the Republican Party. What's so uh, so back to the main part of the story? What's so amazing is that in New Hampshire. Without really running, uh, and just with surrogates dashing around in New Hampshire in the cold, um, yeah. <laughs> Ike's people get 50%. Yeah. And suddenly it seems real uh, yeah. to Ike, uh, to those around him, to the Taft people. They get nervous. They say, okay, we've got this you know, plan in order. It looks like Taft, Mr. Republican, as he was known. Um, 
might win, could win, but now it's now it's in jeopardy. Uh, yeah. Whereas in 1951, it looked like uh, well before it was very clear that that Ike would would come in, that the Taft would be the nominee. Yeah. So so looks like Ike could be a spoiler. And you know, it's funny you mentioned Ike was hoping it would be like Charles Evan Hughes. Another comparison, he might have hoped it would be like Grant. You know, the general who won the Civil War by acclamation. You know, he's the general who won World War Two. Come on, guys, by acclamation, just give it to me. Let's go. Yeah, and he had this view of of the of, of politics and, and party politics, um, a very nineteenth century kind of uh, perception. So in that way, you're yeah. right; it's about Grant. This sort of sense that that the nation came first and the party yeah. came second, yeah. and partisanship should also be sublimated to the nation's needs. And yeah. so you see this in lot yeah. when he comes into office. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting is he governs um, he governs in the kind of broad-based ecumenical way that, that um, a kind of throwback politician would. He thought right. that a general could be called into office and then step away, right? Sort of yeah. Cincinnatus. And this, right, this right. We're going back of, to Washington now. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so that's why he, he expected that, hey, if you really want me and you think I'll win, just pull me in. Yeah. But that's not how party politics were proceeding in this right. point. And actually, what's really interesting, one other reason to think about this and, and for the audience to consider this is this is one of the last times that a party had a really contested convention uh, oh, in yeah, political yeah, yeah. history. Yeah. And you, you could argue that that's something that might be good in American politics today. I mean, we're eyeing the, you know, uh, will Joe Biden, you know, uh, run, keep running and will, it, will yeah, that kind of thing. What, what's yeah. going on with the Republican Party? Yeah. And however you think about those debates, the fact that there aren't really continuing debates at the convention might be a problem for understanding how uh, late breaking news or other things might actually shape who should be a presidential candidate. Yeah. Um, so anyway, this is one of the last contested conventions, and it is really one of the most dramatic in U.S. political history. All right. So Ike wasn't officially running until suddenly he was. (laughs) On June 4th, 1952, I believe it is, roughly one month before the start of the GOP National Convention, he does finally announce he's running for president and he is a Republican. How did his campaign and momentum shift when he officially declared? What did this do for him? So obviously it lets him quickly try to ramp up that ground game more because he's now official. Um, he's stepped back out of his NATO position. Um, so it's allowing him to take a, a, a more, obviously, the, the most political kinds of positions um, announced as a declared party candidate. Um, he gives a speech in Abilene, Kansas on mm-hmm. a football field in the rain and uh, it, that's televised. Uh, tons of people come out and it looks boring. It's not... <laughs> <laughs> he is not persuasive. He is not charismatic, yeah. right? And it's if you know your World War II history, you know Ike the planner, you know Ike inspiring to small groups, you know Ike inspiring in going out amongst the troops uh, about caring about them more than himself, a whole host of things. You also yeah. perhaps know about his, his affair. Um, <laughs> but uh, he was not a big public speaker. Um, and he did not know the nuances of American politics uh, circa the early Cold War in 1952. And so he gives a long speech. He's wet. It doesn't work very well. Not the ton of momentum that's expected. So the Ike campaign had pre-planned Lodge and all these folks had pre-planned with speechwriters all this mm. momentum to come out of it. They're writing it. They, there are articles that come out that say, you know, amazing speech and all this stuff. are all rewritten. <laughs> it, but it yeah, yeah. falls flat. Right. Yeah. So it's a, uh, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a tremendous um, kind of bandwagon situation right. happening because Eisenhower is incredibly popular. P- public opinion polls basically show Democrats like him, Republicans like him. The only groups that don't like him are staunch Republicans. These are the most important <laughs> voters in the primaries, and they are the folks who are uh, the staunch Republican conservatives are the ones who are the most upset about with moderates like Dewey who and, and Wendell Wilkie before him, 1940, 44, mm. 48. These mm. are all losses for the party. If you think about the stakes of 1952, it's been since 1929 yeah. and Hoover – yeah. That Republicans won the presidency. Yeah. There's a brief moment, 47, 48, when Congress is taken by Republicans. Right. Um, but basically, it's Democratic Party dominance across the board. And these conservative Republicans say, we've tried this. It doesn't work. You go with Taft. So this takes us to the 1952 convention, which was a doozy. Because right off the bat, you, you mentioned earlier, there, this is a contested convention, and there's going to be a controversy over Southern delegates. What was the controversy? 
So it, this is fascinating. And uh, <laughs> I'm hoping that in my book, you'll get uh, a really great take. Lots of people have written about this. And I think it's hard to explain. You need, I will do my best to explain it now yeah. verbally, but actually in writing, it, it's easier, uh, but still quite hard. Uh, <laughs> so if you pick up most, if you pick up most accounts of this, they move really fast through the moment of, um, they get there, it's day one, uh, there are contested delegates. Uh, suddenly uh, the TAF people um, uh, don't kind of play their cards right and the Ike people do some votes. Uh, they do some machinations with other people to get some of the uh, state delegates uh, to switch. Delegates realize that Ike's pretty popular. They switch again and now he wins. And that's sort of the very shorthand version of it. Yeah. The reality is much more complicated. Uh, <laughs> late, late June... Uh, yeah. Uh, so they're, they're convening July 7th, 1952 in Chicago. It's super hot, not good AC. Um, it, the place is packed. They didn't, they didn't do the ticketing especially well. The, all the hotels mm. are really, you know, conventions are a mess anyway. And th mm -hmm. this is even more of a mess than usual. Um, the, the leading up to that, uh, places like, uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, California are sets of uncommitted delegates. Uh, but the, um, Georgia and Texas, you've got, uh, state delegates where essentially what happened when they came together to decide, uh, who the state would, um, support, uh, they barred the doors when Eisenhower people who they perceive to be, this is a kind of Taft argument, they perceive yeah. to be not actual Republicans, and, either and rhinos local, or Democrats. These are states that did state conventions to decide state they didn't have primaries, right? Right. So they brought people together in conventions and often county level conventions are so pretty small numbers of people who could announce kind of just to their friends who were uh, and then close the door. Yeah. Uh, and so um, in, in bigger places, uh, literally, there was banging at the door, people trying to come in or there were wow. or there were um, these these uh, county uh, state conventions that um, uh, reannounced when they were going or made made different kinds of statements about when they were going to gather, who was going to yeah. vote. Uh, mm -hmm. They ended the voting early. They went with votes that they um, had previously assumed would be the right number, even if there were different. Uh, there was disagreement in the room. Yeah. Um, this is not uncommon in 19th, 20th century um, convention politics. Remembering, especially that these are democratic states where there's almost no chance that a Republican will be elected. This is just the the true Republican believers, and they're what they're really concerned about in this moment is our. Democratic Ike people coming in yeah, uh, to yeah. mess with this, or even yeah. Trumanites, right? So, uh, right? And so they might, they were worried, you know, if you think about conspiracy theories, they're worried that new dealers are running in here trying to mess with what the Republicans are going to do, you know, right, in right. Chicago in July. Yeah. So, um, what had happened previously, just to give the briefest political history, is that um, there was some, there were contests in 1912, in fact, and okay. um, there was a set uh, kind of standing Republican convention rule that said, uh, and this happened. This is this is uh, task dead. Um, yeah. uh, the set rule was that the people, the contested delegates, could get to vote on their own status. Um, and so, coming into the this convention, that was still the standing consistent rule. So the question, yeah. and I could talk more about like all the nuances of this, but like I said, the question when they get there, the very first move is. Um, something that the Ike campaign had played really smartly in the public press, which was to say, we want an honest accounting of all the delegates in the states. We don't want a backroom deal. Uh, mm -hmm. So the Taft people had written and said, okay, let's reallocate the delegates. Look, you know, let's figure this out. Um, let's not make it a big public mess. Let's not bring it to the convention. Mm. That could have been an alternative. But the, yeah. but the Ike people say, you know, honest Ike, we like Ike, you know, whole campaign yeah. that's about to follow. He's not going to do politics as usual. Yeah. So they get there, the very first thing they call it the fair play amendment. And they say, okay, we can't let these people vote for, for their own delegate status. We're going to have to take them one by one. And then they ask all the people in the and convention quick to clarify, take a vote. When you say vote for your own delegate status, does this mean a contested delegate? Like if I show up and there's a question about whether I'm a count or not, I get to vote myself like I count or not? Yep. Yeah. You could oh. get, so the delegates from Texas could vote uh, on okay. their own delegate status. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. Um, uh, and and then other contested delegates could also vote in that. Um, so it would be all the people from Texas. So there's I show up and I am a Taft guy. You show up and you're an Ike guy, and we have to vote amongst ourselves what we're going to do with our delegation to get to the right number and right. split. It. Got it. it well, got no, it. and no, with the whole convention. With the whole convention. Okay. So the whole okay. convention would have a vote on 
contested delegates. Got it. Um, the, the other way that this could be worked out would be in rules committees. And the yeah. rules committees are all run by TAF people. So the, the, the <laughs> really brilliant uh, maneuver here by the Ike team, by Henry yeah. Cabot Lodge Jr. and all these advisors who are around him. He's got, yeah. He may not have great knowledge of how the political system works in the U.S., Eisenhower, but his team does. And mm. they know that if it goes to the Taft and the rules committees and, and the organizing groups, yeah. they're in trouble. So yeah. they want to take this to the regular delegates, the people Got like it. you and me who are just going to yeah. be there and say, yeah, honest. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, why should the contested delegates get to vote? Right. Even if it's longstanding party you know, precedent, even if it's the way past elections have worked, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Right. So um, so this move, brilliant move, the fair play amendment. Nice, nice language. Right. Great fair play. Name. Sure. Great name. Uh huh. Yeah comes up. And so what's really fascinating is the Taft people are outmaneuvered. They don't necessarily think this is going to pass. And they don't think it will be kind of a fait accompli to quickly roll into that, uh, that, that story that I just gave where, hey, the delegates come, blah, 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 vote, suddenly everybody realizes it's Ike, it's over. Yeah. Uh, but so they're blindsided by the fact that when they put this up, they say, oh, no, actually, the contested delegates shouldn't get to vote for themselves. Um, and, uh, in fact, we need to move more um, cautiously on whether or not they should be uh, given delegate status at all. Um, and so we'll go through state by state to figure this out. Boom. That big vote uh, turns into the next series of votes, which shows just how popular Eisenhower is. And that, in fact, despite controlling a lot of, a lot of the levers of power, the Taft people really don't have a full handle on their own convention. So they come in neck and neck. Seemingly just about the same number of delegates. If you look at the Taft papers, you find they think they're they're right. pretty far ahead. In fact, yeah. the Ike people think they're at least a little behind. They they like to say they're neck and neck, um, and it just switches right there. And the momentum there is tremendous. And that received wisdom that had been murmured about, as I was just saying, maybe Taft isn't electable. Maybe mm. these conservative Republican positions aren't so great. Everybody loves Eisenhower. Yeah. He's, there's no way he's going to lose. That set of murmurings and talking points is clearly in the air there. And the Taft people are kind of surprised because they still think, as I said, right, that the kind of core of the party are these people who don't want the moderate wing taking over anymore. They've been losing national elections. Yeah. And I feel like you see that fight even today, you know, you'll hear people ask what's more important principles or electability, you know, and every yeah. that's part of the equation. So it's part of the polling, you know, part of the question when when sussing out who's going to win the primaries. Yeah. And, and just to even just to be a little bit more um, uh, specific about the numbers there, it's the, the vote there was 658 to 548 pretty dominating vote on the, on the fair play amendment. Mm. And if you think about that in other, in other ways that you're saying that we hear that in contemporary politics, like you hear this sort of received wisdom about how, how things work. And then the reality is sometimes quite <laughs> diverges <laughs> from the received wisdom of pundits, yeah. of, of politicians, et cetera. So but what's fascinating about this move and moment is that the, the more sophisticated people with their hands on the, on the, on the levers of power kind of don't win here. Yeah. Uh, the insurgents win. And, yeah. and it's just kind of odd to say that because, of course, the moderate Republicans have been uh, also you know, very powerful in the party. But it's a, uh, one of the reasons that I'm interested in writing about this, and one of the things I think listeners will be intrigued by, is that this is the last gasp of a kind of conservative Republican foreign policy and domestic politics um, in 1952. These folks get co-opted into the part, into the Eisenhower wing after yeah. this, the ones who are elected politicians, and a lot of the rest die out. I mean, it's the last, it's, so they're older, literally yeah. older, they're, and their their views are figuratively older, right? This 19th century sort of sensibility yeah. uh, of, of a Taft, competing with a different other 19th century sensibility, but one yeah. that's been updated much more, a kind of liberal internationalism, sure, sure. Yeah. kind of pluralism, that's Ike. Yeah, it's a fork in the road for the party. Mm -hmm. um, so my next question is a bit to it, and I just kind of want to know like how much real there is here. We have Senator Taft representing the conservative establishment. We have Dwight Eisenhower, hero of the moderates, entering the convention, roughly the same as port. And then there was also this California governor, Earl yes. Warren, hoping mm -hmm. to play the spoiler, and a young California senator named Richard Nixon up to something in the background. Uh, what was Nixon up to and, and how much credence is there to that he helped kind of manipulate things to help Eisenhower win the nomination and win those key votes that we were just talking about? 
So there is a lot there. Yes. And this is part of what's so fascinating about this moment. There is a lot going on to swing these delegates, right? It's not just uh, the the people in the audience making the votes. Uh, There's shenanigans uh, left, right, and center. And after the convention, just jumping over this for one moment, the Taft people accuse the hell out of the moderates. They say, Mm. you promised Supreme Court nominations. Mm. You promised other appointments like in the cabinet. Check. Some of those really do happen. Um, So uh, they're not entirely wrong, but that's also how American politics tends to operate, (laughs) Um, as your podcast has made amply clear. Uh, So uh, what's going on with Nixon? The Nixon is a rising star of the Republican Party. Um, you know, we don't think of him this way now, but he's charismatic. He's good looking. He's has, is sort of self-made. Um, he is uh, far right. So he's uh, sort of on the McCarthyite part of the yeah. spectrum. He's from the West. That's also really important. Um, as, and so he's part of negotiating where the California delegates will go. Will they swing? Will they start with so the traditional way that this works? is that in the first vote, they go for a favorite son, often the governor, sometimes the senator, but usually the governor. And that would have been Warren. So in this first vote, the first votes, it would have been Warren. Um, uh, But what what Nixon is doing is negotiating both with Warren, but also across the delegates uh, and saying um, tacitly, because he's not, he doesn't out himself as an Ike supporter exactly in this moment. People yeah. know that. So it's a little bit saying that he's like a surreptitious, totally clandestine Ike person. I, it doesn't seem accurate to me. Okay. But he's not announcing that. He's not coming as a representative of the Ike campaign. He's saying, look, um, we should switch the California delegates here in the first round uh, because we will get more out of it, basically. Mm, um, okay. And so the people around Ike are are thinking that he's a good candidate. He's on their short list to be the vice president. Um, He's a little young for that, um, and he doesn't have quite as much experience. But uh, but he's he's better than the kinds of people Ike is thinking about. And Ike isn't really thinking about it because he doesn't know even that (laughs) that VP. More in a second. Yeah. Okay. So he doesn't even really know about how VPs are selected. I mean, and that that's actually true. That's not an apocryphal story about Ike. Right. He's, he was also good at making it sound like he didn't understand things when in reality he had a very, very deep take. Um, uh, as you'll see, it's a press conferences if you ever listen to any of his press conferences. Um, so there's this going on. And then the other piece of the negotiation there, because you mentioned Warren, is that Warren gets promised through a series of convoluted maneuvers the next Supreme Court nomination. Ah. And so you have, you have an amazing set of counterfactuals here. I mentioned this before. Imagine yeah. a Taft presidency right. that doesn't have a Warren court. Right. Imagine a Taft presidency where Nixon's not the VP. Yeah. Um, now, look, uh, histor- professional historians, we don't tend to do counterfactuals, but that's a pretty simple one because it's a one to one causal relationship there. Yeah. Eisenhower yeah. into that. Right. And so the uh, famously um, Eisenhower uh, didn't especially expect um, that the chief justiceship would be the next one to come up sure. um, and wasn't really sure about what this pledge meant anyway. And then suddenly <laughs> he has to appoint Warren and Warren winds up being, you know, part of some of the landmark civil rights cases that then are, to some extent, a thorn in the side of of Eisenhower, who's much more slow-moving on civil rights questions um, than the Supreme Court is, that's for sure. So a lot of truth to this wrangling on these delegates, and and the outcome is basically both of those two major California figures um, become some of the most prominent names in, you know, mid to late 20th century U.S. political history. So uh, Nixon does his wrangling, convinces California to support Ike. Ike wins. Congratulations. Mazel tov. Who did Ike want to pick as his vice president, and how did he end up with Nixon instead? You know, you mentioned the people around him wanted Nixon, but what did Ike want? So Ike, interestingly, Ike surrounds himself. If you read any of the really good biographies, I'd recommend um, Gene Edward Smith's biography, Eisenhower and War and Peace. A a fun one is Ike's Bluff by Evan Thomas. There's Mm -hmm. a great book on Eisenhower in his times by William Hitchcock, Mm -hmm. who's a friend of mine at the University of Virginia, which is a great book. Um, if you read any of those, you'll find that a lot of the Eisenhower kind of friend group are business leaders. A lot of them were former military officers who then um, take on other positions elsewhere. Um, so, uh, for instance, I mentioned General Lucius Clay. Uh, he was CEO of the Continental Can Company. Um, people like that uh, run around with Ike going to golf courses. Um, yeah. So they've got a history, uh, not necessarily in politics, but involved in it. So bundling, working on campaigns, mm-hmm. get, but more more in business. And, and he, he, 
Eisenhower was one of the kinds of thinkers who thought that you could come from any background and become a politician um, mm-hmm. if you're fairly smart um, and a good leader uh, and dedicated to public service. So he, he, if he had a short list, which he didn't going in because he didn't know that the, <laughs> that the VP selection was at least partly up to him, yeah. um, if he had a short list, he would have probably chosen one of these business leaders who he knew well, who was also um, probably former military. Yeah. Um, but he's convinced by the, his campaign team, who were re- really brilliant about this, that he needed, he needed a, to counterbalance his plat, uh, his 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 um, his ticket with uh, someone who's a sort of died in the wool Republican, a full on Republican, because the fear immediately, obviously, once ta- the Taft forces are right. defeated, is that this rift is going to become, you know, an enormous rupture, a chasm, and that the conservatives won't even come out; that they'll quote sit on their hands. And, and I mean, you're vote. speaking the history. Republican Party has been divided by four in 1912. That's how Wilson won. So, like, there's a history of this. Precisely. Yeah. I mean, you could imagine people are calling on Taft, if you read his constituent letters, to run as an independent, to run sort of like a George Wallace or a Strom Thurmond type, which just had just happened or is just about to happen in U.S. political history. Right. So, um, yeah, you could imagine a conservative Taft move, which at least would peel off perhaps states like Ohio. And then who knows what happens with the with the campaign if there's if there's three three parties there. Now, Taft is Mr. Republican. There is no way he's going to do that. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't mean he's going to sign on. And he, he there are there are a lot of hurt feelings here. He goes af- right right after this. They have a quick meeting. He says, I support the Repu- Republican nominee, Dwight Eisenhower. And then he leaves for a summer home in Quebec and until September says nothing about the election. The election then the, the, the battlefield is Eisenhower and Nixon against Illinois Democrat Adlai Stevenson. What were the big issues and what was Ike's strategy now that we're to the general and, and he knows he's the guy? Yeah, so um, there's a couple of things that's worth, that are worth noting in thinking about um, the campaign itself and uh, overall. So one strategy is don't screw it up, basically. <laughs> uh, right? like, people like Ike. Yeah. Um, you know, don't, put, don't tee him up somewhere that he's going to flounder. Um, yeah. you know, get him up to speed on, on politics. Um, have him attack Truman a bit when he's comfortable. Um, you know, he did, they encourage him not to follow his gut on attacking McCarthy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The, uh, the, the one way that people talk, talked about it was K1C2 as a campaign. I like that. Um, Korea, communism, and corruption. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So um, he's going to be hard on communism. Uh, the McCarthyite types are have already become the villain, been villainizing the Democrats for letting communists in. Yep. Um, and the, he eventually in October of 52 says, I'll go to Korea. We'll talk about right. that in a minute, I hope. Yep. Uh, yep. Cool. And uh, corruption. Uh, you know, the Democratic Party has seemed quite corrupt and um and that's certainly how uh, cons- the conservative wing, as well as the moderate wing of the Republicans, are, are, are talking about it. And so he's going to clean up this mess in Washington, is how he put it. Um, but thinking about the campaign itself, there's so much that's fascinating in this moment. This is arguably the first modern, recognizably modern political campaign. Both oh, yeah. candidates are run TV ads. Um, mm. though, so, I, so I said Ike's not the most charismatic. They figure out how to package him. One-minute segments, the whole campaign on TV run by Madison Avenue people, the, the, uh, the person who coined the phrase for M&M's, melts in your mouth, not in your hands, <laughs> runs this campaign, <laughs> the, the media campaign for Madison Avenue. It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. You can watch the clips. A lot of them are, are YouTubeable. I mean, they're great. Yeah. And what they do is the, the campaign is, I, um, uh, is about uh, regular Americans asking Eisenhower questions about the U.S., oh. regular people, different walks of life a mother yeah uh, african-american former serviceman you know two yeah. people two um wor- you know, very like uh blue collar looking people two very white collar looking people whatever uh so uh they're trying to present the sort of personal face of eisenhower which people already think that they know through his wartime experience um and and he does pretty well in that so they can script it some can be ad-libbed um so that so that there's that but there's a real good contrast there because Adley Stevenson says, I refuse to be marketed like soap. Um, <laughs> and he says it's not presidential to run, you know, in, in this sort of colloquial, folksy, Eisenhower talks to Americans kind of way. Yeah. Um, so the contrast there, though they're both running ads, is Ike is there on, on the TV screen talking to Americans. And Stevenson just has regular kinds of ads with, you know, visual graphics and things like that. Um, 
so, so that's one piece of it. Another element is, is the airplane um, is really factoring in this in a new mm. way. So th- these folks travel a lot. Uh, the, the, I'll, I'll check my notes here. Uh, Stevenson used air, air travel for something like tw- uh, 20,000 miles and okay. also 20,000 miles by train. And Ike okay. traveled 30,000 just in the air. Wow. Um, and so that, they're crisscrossing the country, giving yeah. speeches. So in the comparison here, right, in the GOP – Basically, Ike doesn't campaign at all up until the convention. Right. Taft was running all over the place. He said, look, I'm 62. I'm getting old, but I can campaign. You know, I I know my issues. And he knew his issues. He was, you know, had been a sitting senator and all this stuff. Now, Ike's getting up to speed. He's going all over the place. And he's actually beating Stevenson in total miles, you know, in the air and air and train. So you have all this. It's it's a very contemporary sounding campaign. So if we go back through your, your old episodes, right? They called it the front porch campaign. Right, People came right. to the president and only right. just in the months before the election. Now the president's out everywhere. He's shaking hands, kissing babies. He's on TV. He's being marketed like M&Ms and soap, <laughs> all that, right? So this is yeah. like, so that's another thing that's really fascinating about this moment and this campaign. And what resonates is the Madison Avenue marketing. I mean, the one lesson takeaway from this is get your candidates on screen uh, and you will do better. And if you get really smart marketing people to, to finesse that position for them, set of positions, they will, they will have more appeal. Fascinating. And, and, and this all sets up my next question. Uh, and we talk about the game plan, you know, uh, corruption, Korea, communism. Corruption's one of those big ones. And this is all working well for Ike until all of a sudden Nixon gets in some hot water for accusations of corruption, undermining this whole campaign, which leads to one of my favorite Nixon stories and another TV moment, the checker speech. So first off, why was Nixon in trouble? And what did Eisenhower want him to do when Ike scheduled a live televised address on September 23rd, 1952, less than two weeks before Election Day? Yes. So Nixon is hanging by a thread. (laughs) Ike is ready to drop him like, I don't even know what, a piano at a window? What's the right phrase? Uh, He's ready to get rid of him. Uh, He gets one chance. Yeah. He... uh, Nixon, it comes out that Nixon had taken an $18,000 contribution to his campaign and used it for personal expenses. And it seemed like there was a where there's smoke, there's fire situation and that he'd been doing this regularly. And this campaign, the honest campaign, the fair play campaign, the no corruption campaign, Ike will not, you cannot tolerate this. I mean, Ike, Ike is, Ike will take a free golf trip, but Ike will not take eight, the 18,000 um, bucks yeah. and he will not uh, lie about it. So the, the, everything is hinging on how Nixon deals with this. One Ike hope is a naive hope, which is in this moment, which is that um, Nixon will be totally and completely open and honest. Yeah. Um, and, there's just no chance of that. <laughs> um, this this is a moment for Nixon to triangulate, and yep. and boy does he do that. Um, the and step up and take full um, you know full responsibility for what happened. Yeah. Um, so the question you know it, it said you know is it morally wrong to take eighteen thousand bucks that went to um, Nixon for personal use. Um, is it morally wrong if it was secret? If it was morally wrong that it was secretly handled? Um, is, it, is it a problem if the people who contribute get special favors? These are all parts of the, 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 the crux of the scandal in this moment. Yeah. Um, and for Ike, he kind of thinks all of those things are true, um, that, it, that even if the campaign contributions were um, open and transparent and even if contributors don't get a one-to-one kind of uh, payoff from contributing – that part of American politics is not healthy for someone like Eisenhower. Again, this is that 19th century sensibility, not the corrupt late 19th century Gilded Age, but a, a much more, you know, um, a much more kind of aristocratic and noble sense about what po- po- politics could be. So um, for, for, for Nixon, what he's, what he's doing there, if that's, if that's a sufficient setup of it, yeah, yeah. Um, is this move where he says, you know, look, um, every penny of the, these contributions were were for political expenses, and I could prove it. Um, didn't you know? I didn't think I should should charge the taxpayers for some of these things that he was doing that seemed personal. Um, and then he then he makes this quick 
leap. I uh, says, okay, this wasn't secret. People knew about it. I even talked about it, you know. Um, and but then he goes to the most famous part of the checker speech, which is where he says, okay, I admit, the family dog checkers was a political gift. <laughs> and uh, again, this is this televised moment where yeah. uh, the sort of appeal of that taking of responsibility, not about the funding, not about the possible right. misuse yeah. of those funds, but about the dog is the sort of campaign win. Um, yeah. And then Eisenhower, obviously, no, no matter if he's disappointed by the way in which um, Nixon took responsibility, cannot uh, throw aside Nixon, um, who, who made this really adept political maneuver um, with cuteness and sweetness and canine love and all that kind of action. So Nixon survives. <laughs> so Nixon survives, not only to live another day, but to sort of take notes on this moment, uh, to think about how he can manipulate uh, the truth or versions of the truth um, for a political win, and also how he can survive challenges. Um, yeah. And it's, certainly we know through Watergate when you get there, right, yeah. there, there are all these kinds of components. But even, you know, he loses in 1960. He, he can lose and come back. He can, you know, have scandals and, and push through them. Um, th this is a turning point in his political career, obviously. All right. So the, the final story of the campaign, the last October surprise, you alluded to it earlier, was Ike's I will go to Korea moment. Can you give me the context around this? What happened and how it impacted the race? Oh, so much. This is a great one. So this is October 52, and then he actually secretly goes to Korea after he's elected. <laughs> yeah. Um, so again, this is why this election is so fascinating and great. There's so much going on here. I think uh, to quickly broaden out the view for just one moment. So yeah. the politics of this moment are that the Cold War is at a precipice and that it looks like communism is on the march, that Soviet communism is winning. 1949, Mao's armies take China. Right. The Soviet Union you know, explodes the bomb. These are all things that you've dealt with, will deal with, et cetera, right? Um, but it looks like uh, you know, the Marshall Plan is, is expanding um, in Europe. Uh, the Korean War starts in 1950. Um, there's some real uh, dissension in American politics by 1952 about whether or not the Korean War is worth waging. Mm. Um, one of Taft's selling points is that he was a, at least a skeptic of that conflict from the start. And what he famously said um, in, mm. in 51, in particular, early in 51, was this should have come to Congress. This is mm. about the Congress getting to declare war. Yeah. Um, this should be debated, and American troops should not be deployed abroad um, ever, except if Congress uh, gets to decide. And, you know, that in a way, that's prescient if you think about the rest of the century. And even if you think about how uh, Ike is willing to use troops, so coming out of the conflict, he's much more uh, coming out of the coming out of the election and into future conflicts. He's operationalizing um, the use of the CIA much more right. in Guatemala and Iran. Um, right. uh, you know, Eisenhower's foreign policy and military policy is very much about the so-called new look and atomic weapons and about um, slow regime change and not committing lots of troops on the ground or fast right. regime change through the CIA and other covert right. means. Yeah. So it's very different from how a Taft, a conservative Republican of that moment, would have thought of it, um, and, and somewhat or largely keeping with uh, the kind of Truman, Truman set of, of ideas, a kind of uh, democratic foreign policy. Um, so this moment, though, about Korea, right? So K the Korean War is, is really unpopular, and um, Taft gives, doesn't have to give a speech on this. What's really interesting is um, he, he wants to. And he gives the speech in October of, of 52, October 24th, 52. And, um, and he argues that he will go to Korea. Now, this is sort of silly, flippant, right? I mean, what does it matter? But the hero of the Second World War is going to try to figure this out, and he wants to end the conflict. That's what he's saying. So yeah. there had been this imbroglio between um, Truman and MacArthur about MacArthur arguing um, that uh, the U.S. should use all means at its disposal, inclu right. including atomic weapons, uh, and should expand the war into China. Uh, MacArthur gets fired. MacArthur, notably, might well have been Taft's running mate. Now imagine Ooh, wow. if Taft had won, That's a and the Taft presidency had right because they would have wanted to add some military firepower there, uh, potentially. Yeah, especially because knowing that Taft dies like a year after the election. <laughs> Holy smokes! Yes, so Taft dies in '53. Imagine what U.S. foreign policy, how different it would have looked with the skepticism about NATO and the unilateral hawkishness of a MacArthur. Totally different from a uh, Eisenhower-Nixon team yeah. um, and the kind of bipartisan consensus internationalism that, that is really a borning in, in the 50s. So um, 
Why Korea? Well, he said, you know, the, the war is going badly. Um, it looks like an intractable conflict. And, and essentially, this pledge to go to Korea is a pledge to solve the war, uh, to mm-hmm. end the conflict, and actually to go on the ground and do the sorts of things that um, a military commander who's been there with the troops can do, in part also to increase morale. Um, right. But he says very notably, you know, that, that this is, uh, in that speech, that this is sort of a, a turning point moment in American foreign policy. Will the U.S. Um, do these kinds of hot wars against communism, and, and can it succeed as a conflict. And again, you know, in, in achieving the ends that the U.S. would want, which is sort of something like democracy promotion and containment of communism around the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so and for him, it, it seems like, you know, if you read between the lines of the speech, um, he doesn't want that anymore. So the so a kind of non-interventionist wing hears something positive in the I will go to Korea, as well as those who want to see the war pursued, you know, more, either more hawkishly or at least to victory, whatever that looks like. Then secretly after the election in November, he flies to Korea. Um, and you can see at the, at the Eisenhower Library in Abilene, Kansas, the parka that he wore, a, camo, a camo parka with no insignia because everybody didn't want the new president to get assassinated. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's not yeah. start that way. Yeah. And so he goes and he sees Seoul. And anybody who knows the map of Korea, he goes and he sees Seoul and it's totally destroyed. Yeah. Right. Because it's right there in the artillery range of the north. Yeah. And, 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 and that makes a difference for him, too, in thinking about um, – how to try to resolve the conflict, uh, knowing that the cities of the north are, are just as destroyed as, as, as most of the cities in the south, like Seoul. And part of that is through this famous set of bluffs uh, for using right. atomic weapons. Yeah. Um, he's very much not, you know, if you read his papers, if you, th- if you read th- between the lines of his papers, if you, t- if you look at what others thought, generally speaking, it's pretty clear he never wanted to use atomic weapons. Yeah. But in public... And through intermediaries, he makes clear that they are on the table, especially to resolve a conflict with China. And coming out of this in the, in the maelstrom of 1953, where Stalin dies, and there's all this, uh, there's a lot of action in 1953. Um, that is part of the process of concluding the conflict uh, and persuading as well uh, the U.S.'s South Korean allies to take a bad deal because it's better than no deal. Yeah, and it's interesting because Truman had very clearly taken them off the table, especially in his big fight with MacArthur, and he got pinned down in a way that Ike wasn't as a new guy coming in. Precisely, yep. At the end of the day on this election, Ike won in a landslide 442 to 89 in the Electoral College, 34 to 27 million in the popular vote. What is the lesson and the legacy of this race, both on presidential politics and electioneering, but also the impact on the Republican Party for the gener- for the decades that followed. So I think um, on the first level, it is the modern presidency and the modern presidential campaign. Even though Ike is not a, a um, standard kind of candidate by any means, um, you know, between the air travel, the campaigning style, um, the use of media and marketing, um, the approach overall is uh, really precedent setting for the way we now think of politics. The transition in how conventions operate is a, um, is a, is a stark one as well um, and important. Uh, how, how do the rules work at conventions? Will there be contested delegate counts? Uh, who is the likely nominee going in? After this, most the, both uh, parties recognize that they want to have the momentum coming out into and out of the conventions, which means having a nominee before. So after mm. 52, basically, all of the uh, all of the future conventions have a nominee going in and coming out. That's a foreordained conclusion. Um, there may be slight doubts in a few of these, but nothing like 1952 uh, and the GOP nomination in particular. Um, so there are those components. I think the rift between the Ike team and the Taft team is not to be underestimated in terms of its longstanding fractures and fissures in conservative and Republican Party politics. I would argue that the kind of arguments here about limiting the U.S.'s role in the world, uh, binding commitments, security alliances like NATO, uh, working with the U.N., that's a set of Taftian positions, versus uh, Eisenhower's uh, working with allies, working for the collective good, trying to even equalize the difference between small and large states. Um, those are hugely important differences uh, that very much stick with us. You can, If you're hearing an echo there, you are right to hear the echo of a kind of unilateralist argument that, that argued for the U.S.'s um, best interests in all deals, right, kind of transactional thinking, border control, um, bilateral, not multilateral, America first. 
right? And those sets of ideas in 52 go somewhat subterranean, but that rift is there throughout. And then if you think about what comes later, um, uh, at the end of the Cold War, it resurfaces with a vengeance in um, Pat Buchanan, for instance, arguments about America first, about the way the U.S. has been duped by international alliances and organizations at the mm-hmm. U.S.'s cost. You can think about some of the even conservative arguments about the costs of Vietnam and the Vietnam syndrome um, are about this, kind of the U.S. stabbed in the back by non-believers, by allies, by, by poor allies, by you know liberals, all that kind of thing. These are the sort of arguments you're hearing. The conspiracy of the liberals stopped Taft, right? They stopped Taft in Texas and they stopped Taft in, in the convention in, in Chicago. There's not good evidence of that, but that is what, right? <laughs> yeah, that yeah. moves you forward. Um, so for at least several generations after that, you, the success of Eisenhower and his policies really sort of convinced the Taft people um, that they were, they're kind of victims, embattled victims of an internationalist conspiracy or cabal, if you want to go deep there, to spread communism, to spread liberal values. Um, and so that, that group on a farther and farther right positioning um, takes real offense at, at who's taken over the Republican Party. On the other side, you have now, uh, when, when historians have argued for a kind of consensus foreign policy of the Cold War, this is it. You know, it doesn't last long. There are plenty of debates within it, but this is it. Eisenhower's vision fits pretty neatly with Truman's vision. Yeah. There's not a lot of difference there. In fact, congressional Democrats vote just as much or more than congressional Republicans for things that Eisenhower wants in foreign policy yeah, and domestic yeah, policy. Yep, yep. And you know, this alignment is a really important new alignment. Um, so the Republican Party had become more moderate, more internationalist. Um, the, old, uh, the old isolationist uh, uh, and expansionist claims of the Republican Party um, from those like Henry Cabot Lodge types, they want, or Teddy Roosevelt, expand but unilaterally. That's gone. Now it's multilateralism, work with allies. Work. So that, those are hugely significant in domestic politics and party politics. So when we tend to think about the transformation of Republican, the Republican Party, this revival that happens after 52 comes because of Ike. Again, nominally apolitical. Sure, mm-hmm. he liked the Republican Party from the start. But there, are other, there were other possibilities. And his yeah. maneuvering towards the center there really transforms the party. If you think about then in the broader legacy, right? Yeah. Since 1929, since you had a Republican president, the, the New Deal coalition has reshaped the Democratic Party. This is the chance for the Republicans to have something like it. And the, in 50, out, coming out of 52, they have a trifecta for the first time of the presidency, the House of Representatives, and the Senate, and they can start passing things and making moves. And the last gasp of those old conservative isolationists are people like the Ohio Congressman John Bricker pushing for amendments to restrict the president's capacity to do foreign policy. Yeah. And, and they lose. And they, or they get co-opted into this moderate wing or moderate center dominating the Republican Party, and lots of them drop away. Herbert Hoover's still alive, still making arguments for a circumspect right. U.S. foreign policy and yeah. against the New Deal, yeah. no longer the dean of the Republican Party. They don't yeah. come to pay obeisance to him you know, in West Branch or New York, where he mostly lived in the Plaza Hotel. Uh, you know, they, um, and, and so the party itself has changed, fundamentally changed. And 52 is that pivot. It feels like this is the beginning of that old phrase, politics ends at the water's edge, you know, because Ike basically aligned with Truman. And, and from that point forward, it's kind of like this is the international policy of the United States stamped. Yep. I mean, that old claim that that phrase is the 19th century claim. And at different moments, it it. Um, seems most realistic and right. it's very true in this 50s era and you, but you start to see some rupture there in the early right. 60s um, mm, okay. but but containment foreign policy holds generally yeah. through those debates and there's a, a kind of um, agreement among politicians it's really interesting you can go back just just a little bit earlier in um, 44 uh, Dewey was doing pretty well against FDR, and and one of the arguments um, that that Dewey was making effectively was to to ridicule um, or, uh, the uh, negotiations, the diplomatic negotiations that sure. were um, selling out um, Central Europe, basically. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Cordell Hull goes to him and says, "Look, um, we can't have this kind of foreign policy. The for, foreign policy is." this political. Um, we're not going to win this war. This is not how we want to operate as a, as a, as a 
public yeah. and we agree the democratic party agrees to not weaponize foreign policy against you mm. um and and basically the dewey i'd say okay we're not gonna we're not gonna make the diploma current wartime diplomacy a major yeah. issue in the presidential campaign and so i think you're exactly right to say look that that positioning from the mid 40s and the wartime moment and here's yeah. ike again this transition figure into the 50s it holds yeah. and then as you get into the 60s certainly by 64 with goldwater you're starting to see a real break and yeah. then you know as vietnam escalates um that really changes uh but um this is perhaps the most important turning point era for the cold war yeah and so you know having that bipartisan consensus is is a is a great um way of understanding and again not fully a consensus but a lot more um a, gr a great way of understanding you know, how you get things like the interstate highway system, how you get all this landmark right. legislation in the 50s. It may not feel as transformative as some things that people who know political history for other eras know well, like the Voting Rights Act and Civil Rights Act in the mid-60s. Right. But these are really important. Huge. You get a first civil yeah. rights piece of civil rights legislation. You get Eisenhower pledging in, in 1957 the Ike Doctrine to, to support free peoples in the Middle East. I mean, this is enormously transformative for U.S. foreign and domestic politics. And again, the, some of those, even the domestic pieces, are connected, like the highway system, to foreign right. policy. There's a lot of, right. of, of really close dovetailing of domestic and foreign policy in these years. Um, and I think there's one more legacy that's interesting that, that's, is part, that's been um, important for my book project and, and how I think about this. And th another element of this that's fascinating, and I teach a class on religion and U.S. foreign relations, mm. is that Eisenhower brings into office a slightly changed view about religion yeah. and, and, and a big idea, which is basically, um, as my colleague at, at Cambridge, um, uh, Andrew Preston says, uh, basically that um, religious faith, with the, faith was the source of democratic politics um, yeah. and that, that you need to have religious faith to be a proper democratic citizen, an engaged citizen. And the famous turns of phrase or, or misparaphrasings of Eisenhower's, I don't care what you believe, but you must believe something. Hmm. You see in the Eisenhower years, you see in the 50s, you see yeah. a kind of rise of a civil religion where yeah. 54, 57, you get under God and the Pledge of Allegiance and, yep. and on money. Yep. And you see in this era, a set of changes about how US foreign and domestic politics are configured through a kind of Judeo-Christian lens which suggests that atheist communism is the other, is the problem, right, and right. a proper democracy needs to function through faith, some kind of faith. And, and some um, Ike antagonists say, you know, why is he so anti-atheist? <laughs> um, <laughs> and in this era, not many people are identifying as atheists, so it didn't really matter so much as a political position, but it is an interesting thing that yeah. to see him making these arguments in public, and you see fused in his speeches in ways that you haven't seen in some ways, all going all the way back to Lincoln, um, a yeah. kind of... Uh, faith in the de de American democratic project um, that was about living up to the best ideals of democracy, which included a kind of sense of um, Judeo-Christian, do unto others, obligation, duty, civil service. Uh, you know, now they seem like sort of some of those, even the secular ideas, seem kind of quaint to us in American politics. But then they were really um, poignant and important. And the contrast here, one more element here is that um, this is one of the last times that you see in the 1952 GOP battle uh, a difference between conservatives and moderate Republicans, where the moderate Republicans like Eisenhower are more invoking faith than the conservatives. Um, mm. And so Hoover was a Quaker. He was a big yeah. ally of Taft. Yeah. And Taft's, Taft's vision of religion is, is much more reduced and he's much less willing to say that democracy relies on faith than, yeah. you know, than Eisenhower. And so again, another element in being introduced here and changing is that the, the rift between um, the Eisenhower people and the Taft people also then becomes instantiated in a kind of conservative religious groups who, who rise up later as a new right uh, in the 70s into the 80s, and they want to bring a much more staunch orthodox version of religion into public life. The Eisenhower version is, you know, um, as some, some uh, both uh, antagonists and protagonists, uh, lovers of Eisenhower would say, pretty diluted. Um, he famously <laughs> told his uh, aides, like, he didn't really want to go to church in front of, um, in front of photographers, but he would. 
<laughs> so yeah. he becomes Presbyterian when he comes into, or Episcopalian, excuse me, when he comes into office. Um, but he, you know, he he hadn't identified. In fact, he as a as a kid, although he was very religious, like I said, just just in the more of this broadly ecumenical way, he actually um, comes out of a, a either Dutch Mennonite tradition or Jehovah's Witness tradition, um, and which was a peace tradition. But he goes into the military, so you could kind of see the you know yeah. um, uh, a little wishy washiness in his in his exact theological perspective, but not in his sort of deeper religiosity. And I think that's mm-hmm. a really interesting thing to note here in this election. Um, and and in the consequences that, that the Eisenhower years are a blending of American public religion and um, and civil society in new ways uh, that are very much with us in, in ways that we often don't understand, don't don't recognize as public policy choices that happened in the 1950s. If you've enjoyed this interview with Chris and want to learn more about Ike, well, set a reminder to go get his book. In a few years, you'll know I'll be promoting when it comes out, uh, or you can pick up any of Chris's other books on U.S. history in the meantime. Thank you for your time, Chris. Hey, it's great to be on with you, and thanks so much for caring about history, presidential and political history, politics, and all that good stuff. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about the show, and write a five-star review on Apple Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridgedpresidentialhistories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show, and thank you so much to everyone who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode... We've had many generals become presidents in the Union's history. Washington, Jackson, and Grant, to name a few. But none since Eisenhower. How did Ike's military experience prepare him for the presidency? And how did it inform his views on military deployments to Vietnam, Korea, and Arkansas? And on the military-industrial complex? A discussion with Colonel Brian Gibby, the Deputy Department Head of History at West Point, is coming up next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.